Hello, and welcome to this series on the ancestors of the book of Genesis. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. Hello, my friends. Uh, Welcome back to our Wednesday evening Bible study here at One Fellowship United Methodist Church. Uh, As always, I lament that we cannot gather in person. I pray that you all are staying safe, are keeping well, uh, that you are um, doing well during this season of social distancing, um, and that everyone's staying healthy. We have been going through our series on uh, the ancestors in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 12 through 50, quite a lot of material. Uh, It's a series that, of course, I would uh, very much enjoy to be going through um, in person where we can have conversations around the table, asking questions, uh, talking about different details in the text. Uh, But for now, here we are on Facebook Live, uh, putting one of our most introverted members out there on the Internet. Well done, friends. (laughs) Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the text. We give you thanks uh, for the opportunity to read, to inquire, to explore, to ask questions. We pray that in this time that we will turn to you, that we will seek you, that in this time you will unsettle our expectations so that we may learn. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, my friends. Uh, So we have been going through the story of the ancestors. We are here in... uh, Um, moving on to the story of Jacob. So in the past few weeks, we looked at Abraham, we looked at Ishmael, we looked at Isaac, and now we're looking at the next generation. We are looking at the Jacob story. And the Jacob story, unlike the story of uh, Isaac, it it takes up quite a bit of uh, material in the book of Genesis. The Jacob story spans uh, roughly chapters 25 to 35. It's far uh, larger. And so in many respects, the, the Jacob story uh, parallels the Abraham story in this, uh, this capacity. The Abraham story is quite extensive in the book of Genesis. The Jacob story is quite extensive in the book of Genesis. And we will find when we move on to the next generation that the Joseph story is also quite extensive in the book of Genesis. The story that stands out is the Isaac story as a substantively smaller. And so, you know, some people speak of the speak of the ancestor stories in the book of Genesis as kind of revolving around three primary cycles, uh, that of Abraham, that of Jacob, and then that of Joseph. Now, Isaac, of course, also stands out as the only one of the patriarchs that does not receive a formal name change in the course of this story. And we have found that these name changes are often significant for the storytelling, but also for how we understand the identity of these patriarchs. Now, when when we come into the Jacob story, something we're going to notice is that there are a lot of similarities uh, between the the past generations and the story of Jacob. It's fascinating to look at how the book of Genesis tells these stories in such a way so as to hold all of these uh, ancestors together. There are similar narratival threads or themes that hold these stories together, Uh, one of which, of course, is the Abrahamic promise, this promise that uh, God will turn the family of Abraham and Sarah into a great nation. But with the promise, we also get these threats to the promise. And the threats to the promise in each generation, they're what drives the storytelling. And so there there are four threats that tend to hold all of these ancestors together. We get the, the theme of barrenness. Sarah is barren in the story of Abraham and Sarah. And uh, 
Rebecca is barren in the story of Isaac and Rebecca. We're going to see again in the book or in the story of Jacob that Rachel is once again going to be barren. This this theme of barrenness is going to threaten um, the ancestral promise in each generation. We also get this theme of sibling rivalries uh, that threatens the the, uh, the unfolding of this promise. So in um, the Abraham and Sarah household, we get this this sort of tension between Ishmael and Isaac. Then in Isaac's household, Isaac and Rebekah, we're going to get this tension between Esau and Jacob. And in Jacob's household, we'll see that there's going to be this tension between Joseph and his brothers. And we're also going to get this endangered matriarch motif, how in each, uh, in each generation, particularly in Abraham and in Sarah, or in, with Abraham and Sarah and with Isaac and Rebekah, there, there's this theme of the matriarch becoming endangered. And in each case, there's a need for God to protect the promise. God is the one who has to intervene. And this is what drives the storytelling in each generation of the ancestors. But what's fascinating, even as we see the ways in which um, the, the ways in which the ancestral promise uh, holds all these stories together, even as we see the ways in which um, these threats to the ancestral promise uh, drive the storytelling in each generation. What's fascinating is to look at the ways in which these ancestors differ and to look at the ways in which the presentation of God in these stories differs. It, it's a fascinating study to do sometime. Read through the Abraham stories and just look at who is God? How does God show up on the scene? How does God speak? And then reading through the Jacob stories and just say, how does God look a little bit different? How does God show up to this character differently? Look at the Abraham stories and look at the character of Abraham and Sarah. Who are they? Then look at the character of Jacob and we start to see really substantive differences between not just the ancestors and how the stories are told, but also uh, between um, how God shows up, manifests, and drives these stories. When we look at Jacob, some of the things that's going to set him apart is Jacob is, uh, he's kind of a trickster, a little bit. Um, Jacob is, uh, I don't want to say a prankster. He's a little more devious than a prankster. He's going to trick his brother out of his birthrights. He's going to trick his father into uh, receiving the, the family blessing. Um, performing tricks is just kind of part of his character. And what we're going to see over the course of this story is that there's a substantive character shift or character development in Jacob. There's growth here that we find. And this is one of the distinctive aspects of uh of the, the storytelling around Jacob. So when we look through these chapters, what's interesting is that the stories of Jacob begin and end with this conflict with Esau, his twin brother. The stories begin with uh, his encounter with Esau in chapters, uh, um, in chapters 25, and then you get that again in 27. And then Jacob is going to have to flee out to a foreign land. He's going to leave, and he's going to come back, and the story is going to conclude once again with this uh, confronting of Esau or, or this engagement with Esau. And so the story begins and ends at home, and begins and ends with this tension at home, this threat at home. Jacob is going to go out, and he's going to come back. And over the course of this journey of leaving and coming back, Jacob comes back. A different person. So my friends, uh, the, the heart of the Jacob and Esau story um, is really in chapters 29 and 30. And it's here where we start to see this blessing unfolding uh, in Jacob's life. Uh, Jacob, we get the story of Jacob's children, we get the story of Jacob's flocks. And so over the course of this entire story, it begins with Jacob as a trickster, Jacob has to flee, he runs out uh, to a foreign land, 
there, there's this blessing that takes place, but then he comes back and he comes back a different person now. And then he re-engages in this story of conflict with, uh, with his brother, with Esau. And so my friends, as we look at this, we want to look at some of the key themes that unfold in, in this development of Jacob's story. We also want to uh, take a look at um, the ways in which God and the uh, ancestral promise play into this. So my friends, if you will, please... Um, Let's uh, go ahead and flip over to uh, the book of Genesis. We're going to start reading actually in chapter 27, but I want to give us a little bit of a running head start. We get the introduction of two twins, two brothers, Esau and Jacob. And uh, Esau is the firstborn, uh, and therefore, according to the ancient, uh, the ancient Mesopotamian worldview, he should be the one that sort of inherits the, the familial estate. But we see Jacob comes out, and he's kind of this trickster, and he's going to trick his brother out of it. Now, uh, the, the name Jacob uh, probably means something along the lines of God protects, maybe, or God does protect. But we've seen in, in the biblical storytelling that word plays are a very significant thing. Um, oftentimes there are word plays between uh, names and meanings. And so uh, it, it helps us see the meaning of the characters there. The name Jacob is a word play for uh, the word heal or takes by the heel. Um, and it has this sense of, of not only Jacob's birth story, but the fact that he comes out and he, he tries to supplant his brother a little bit. Uh, well, he, he does. And so there's already this sense around Jacob's identity, both, both through the word plays um, as well as the storytelling that Jacob is not just a trickster. Jacob is a usurper. He's trying to take someone else's place. And so we want to keep that in mind. Now, now we know the story of um, when Esau goes out hunting, he comes back and he's hungry and Jacob just happened to be cooking. And uh, Esau says, oh, please give me some of that stew. And uh, Jacob says, I'll, I'll sell it to you for your birthright. And Esau does it. And then we get another story in chapter 27 when Isaac, Jacob and Esau's uh, father, is, is old. His eyes are failing. And so he calls his oldest son, Esau, and he says, Esau, please go prepare for me um, this great meal with the wild game uh, that, you, that you hunt um, so that I can give you my blessing. And so Esau goes out hunting but Jacob, along with his mother, there's this scheme they hatch. And so Jacob comes in, pretends to be Esau, so that he can steal his brother's blessing. And so we get that in chapter 27. And in chapter 27, this, this is where uh, we're, at, um, we're at the bedside of Isaac. Jacob had just come in and given um, Isaac the food. Uh, and had pretended to be Esau. And so now Isaac believes that the brother standing before him, the son standing before him is in fact Esau. And so Jacob bestows, uh, or Isaac bestows upon Jacob the blessing that he had intended for Esau. And he comes here in verse 27. So he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his garments and he blessed him. And he said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you. The nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. We're getting this theme of sort of bowing down. Keep this in mind for when we get to the, uh, to the Joseph story later on. But here's what I want us to see is, is this last part here in verse 29, chapter 27, verse 29, when it says, cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. 
And this language reminds us of that Abrahamic promise that's been woven throughout these stories, holding all of these stories together, this promise. Now, we, we, uh, if you've read the story, you, you know how it, um, how it unfolds. Eventually, uh, Jacob's uh, deception comes to light. Esau is furious that Jacob had stolen his birthright. And so Esau is going to kill him. So Rebecca, uh, his uh, mother, finds a way to um, convince Isaac to send Jacob away. Send Jacob away so that he can find a wife among their kinspeople. And so we're getting this, this sort of exodus theme of going out from their homeland. And what's fascinating is we see this theme throughout uh, the ancestral stories in several places. Uh, in fact, Abraham is called to leave his homeland to follow the calling of God. Uh, then we get um, here Jacob now. Jacob is forced to leave his homeland, and along the way, he is going to encounter a calling of God. When we get to the Joseph story, once again, Joseph is going to be sold into slavery by his, his brothers. Uh, a, a horrific story. But once again, there's this theme of he, he has to leave his homeland, and it's there that he's going to find his calling. Let's continue. When we get into uh, verse 28, <clears throat> This is when um, Isaac calls to Jacob and is essentially sending him out. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called to Jacob and blessed him and charged him, You shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. Go to, at once to Paran Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as wife from there one of the daughters of Laban your mother's brother. Now we've seen this story unfold before. This is exactly what happened with Abraham and Isaac, right? Remember, uh, Abraham doesn't want um, Isaac to marry one of, one of the Canaanites, and so he sends a servant out, uh, out to the same household at uh, Paran Aram in order to um, find uh, a wife for Isaac among his kinspeople. The parallels are going to continue. So in verse 3, chapter 28, verse 3, May God Almighty bless you. This is uh, Isaac speaking to Jacob. He's pronouncing a blessing over Jacob before he sends him out. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and numerous that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham or may he give, the blessing of, give to you the blessing of Abraham and to your offspring with you so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien the land that God gave to Abraham. And so we're getting this passing of the Abrahamic promise, this passing of the ancestral promise, this passing of the covenant on to the next generation. And even as these stories come and go, even as these generations come and go, this ancestral promise is going to hold all of these stories together. Now, what's fascinating, though, is that thus far in the story, uh, Jacob does not look like the particular kind of individual that uh, would be, um, shall we say, worthy of or deserving of a blessing like this. He's a trickster. He, he's deceptive. But we're going to see he's going to grow into this blessing. And Jacob's going to grow into his calling in some respects. Let's keep going. So he, he, he travels to Padan Aram, to Laban. Um, Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean. And so this is... Um, his mother's uh, brother. So he's, he's traveling to family. And when we come to verse 10 in chapter 28, Jacob left Beersheba. He went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. 
and he dreamed that there was a ladder. Uh, we, we, we could say um, another translation might be like a ramp or, or like a stairway or something like that. He dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. P- picture uh, Jacob, he, he's uh, going forth. He, he stops and he has this dream of, of this connection between heaven and earth. And, and the angels use this, this passageway to go between the two realms. Verse 13, the Lord stood beside, and and here's, we could translate this stood beside him. We could translate it stood beside it, maybe stood above it, stood around it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed in you and your offspring. And and, and this is that same language from the Abrahamic promise, that same language that's been echoing throughout these stories since Genesis chapter 12. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or, or we talked about how another way to translate that is maybe all the families of the earth could bless themselves by you. Uh, this, this sense of saying, may I be like that individual? May I, may I be blessed like that individual? What's fascinating is when we look at Jacob, Jacob leaves his homeland. He has this one character. He's a trickster. He's a usurper. He's deceptive. And along the way, he's going to have these various encounters that are going to facilitate his growth as a character. And along the way, we're going to see these encounters with God that help him grow into this blessing, where where the blessing now, the promise, is not just one that was given to him by his parents. It actually becomes his own. This is the Abrahamic blessing, holding these stories together. Then Jacob awoke. We're in verse 16. And Jacob awoke, awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And, and let, let's just pause for a moment before, before we even move on. How often is God, do we encounter God in a place, but we didn't realize it? How often is God present and we don't realize it? We don't stop to recognize it. Let's keep going. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. That, that phrase, house of God, in Hebrew, Bethel. And we're going to get this language throughout the Jacob story, this location where he's going to keep coming back to, Bethel, the house of God. It is fascinating to pause and to reflect. You know, oftentimes in, in our modern American society, in our modern uh, American Christianity, we, we have this sense that there are certain spaces that are sacred, and we sometimes refer to those spaces as the house of God or the house of the Lord. We oftentimes refer to churches using that language as if uh, this is the space where we anticipate encountering God in some sense. But it's fascinating to pause and to think that sometimes it's the ordinary spaces along our journeys. It's the place where we lay our head for just a night, where we can encounter God in very real ways. Those are the places that can turn out to be the house of God when we didn't even know it. Let's, let's keep reading, my friends. <clears throat> we'll, we'll, uh, 
skip down here. Let's let's get down to uh, to chapter twenty nine. And, and chapter twenty nine is um, Jacob goes on his journey uh, towards the east, and this is the place where he's going to meet um, where he's going to meet Rachel. Jacob went on his journey. He came to the land of the people of the east, and as he looked, he saw a well in a field. Now we've been here before, haven't we? Because when in the Isaac story, right? Remember when Abraham sends his servant out to find a wife for Isaac. Isaac goes to the same location, or uh, sorry, the servant goes to the same location, and the servant stops where at a well. And we get this theme of of the ancestors uh, meeting their their wives almost at wells. Uh, we we get this with uh, Isaac's um, wife. Uh, Rebecca is um, initially introduced into the story at a well. Here we're going to get Jacob uh, meeting Rachel at a well. We get this with Moses also. Uh, Moses meets his wife at a well. This idea of wells is highly symbolic in the Bible. You know, water was signified life. It was a source of life. It was a source of new life. And so oftentimes water takes on that kind of imagery of bringing life into the world. And so in, in each of these stories, when, when we're getting this move to the next generation, almost the building of a new family, we get this symbol of life being present in the midst of, of the formation of this new family. And so a, as the story goes, um, Jacob goes to the well, and that's where he meets Rachel, uh, coming to water the sheep. And so he, he introduces himself to her. Uh, she goes and tells her father, Laban. Laban says, bring, bring him in. Um, and of course, they, they negotiate a marriage contract uh, in, in the ancient world. This, uh, this was often how marriages were arranged. Um, it was usually contracts between two families. Um, and so Jacob agrees to work for seven years for Laban in exchange for, uh, in exchange for Rachel. But if you know the story, then you know in Genesis 29, that's not exactly what happens. Yes, Jacob works for seven years, but then he, um, on the night of his wedding, who shows up? It's not Rachel, it's actually Leah. And uh, Jacob, do uh, Jacob doesn't realize this um, until the next morning. In fact, the text says uh, quite literally, when morning came, behold, Leah. Um, and at this point, J Jacob is fairly upset. He goes to Laban, Laban went back on his word, but notice what happens on this journey. Jacob starts out as a trickster. He starts out as someone who deceives, a usurper. And then along his journey, he meets another trickster. Along his journey, he meets someone else who's deceptive. And this is a really crucial turning point in the development of Jacob. He goes out from his homeland, a trickster, a someone who's deceptive. He meets a trickster. He meets someone who's deceptive. And he's going to come back different. And sometimes it does take us seeing, um, I guess, I don't want to use the word vice, our vices or our faults, but sometimes it takes us seeing how the consequences for our actions can play out in someone else's situation to open our eyes to who we are. In, in this story, um, this is a motif that's going to continue throughout the Jacob story. This idea of being a trickster or uh, of being deceptive. It shows up in a wide variety of ways. But throughout these chapters, chapters 29, chapters 30, this is when we start to see the blessings unfolding for Jacob. Um, this is when uh, 
<clears throat> over the course of what's going to turn into a very complicated uh, marriage situation, uh, we're going to get the birth of 11 of Jacob's eventual 12 children. We're going to see the unfolding of his flocks, the, uh, the, the um, uh, multiplication of his flocks. And, and very quickly, Jacob becomes uh, what in at least the ancient world would consider a very prominent individual with many children and with great flocks throughout the course of this. So he, he, he goes out to a foreign land, he receives this blessing, and we're going to skip ahead here in the story. Once again, the Jacob story is about 10 chapters long, and I really want to hit these high points of what holds this storytelling together. And I want us to come to um, chapter 32. So Jacob encounters um, a trickster, Laban, and then he's going to come back. And so he ends up departing from Laban. And in some sense, he's a little bit fleeing Laban also. And so we're seeing Jacob starting to leave this foreign land to come back home in much the same way that he left his homeland in the first place. But now when he is coming back, uh, there is something different, not just about the, the world around him, meaning not just about his family, his uh, I don't want to say prestige, but sort of the, the wealth that he carries with him, his status almost. But there's something different about his, um, his identity as well. is changing, it's transforming. And once again, it's in this liminal place where he's going to encounter God. Remember, when he left his home, he comes through this liminal place before getting to his destination. That's where he encounters God. And now he's going to leave that foreign land. He's coming back stronger. He's coming back uh, with more. And in this liminal place, once again, he's going to encounter God. And let me pause uh, just for a moment and recognize that this is a theme that we start to see throughout not just the ancestor cycles, but throughout the storytelling in the Hebrew Bible. That sometimes when they go out to a foreign land, there's a theme. They go out to a foreign land, but they come back stronger. They go out into exile away from the place where they're comfortable, away from their homeland, but they come back stronger. The, the idea of, of going away, of going to a foreign land in, in the Hebrew Bible, there's a lot of symbolism tied to this. Um, it's a place where we're not comfortable. It's oftentimes a place of pain. It's oftentimes a place of discomfort um, and sometimes even worse. But what's fascinating is in this story, in this storytelling, the way they tell these stories consistently, the ancestors go forth into a place that's not their homeland, a place where they're not comfortable, a place where uh, oftentimes there's a lot of discomfort, but they come back stronger, but they come back more. We see this with Abraham. Abraham goes down into Egypt, a place where he's not supposed to be. But when he comes back, he comes back with greater wealth. We see this uh, in the Jacob story here. He, he goes forth, but then when he comes back, he comes back stronger. We see this in uh, when, um, when the children of Israel are going to go down into Egypt with the Joseph story. They go down as one family, but they're going to come back out a nation. They come back out stronger. And what's fascinating in, this, in, in the way the, these patterns throughout the stories is this so often they descend into places of pain, but they come out stronger. They descend into places of discomfort, but they come out stronger. They descend into places that are not their homelands. It's not the place where they're supposed to reside. It's not the place where their story ends and they come out stronger. And I do not want to downplay the, the reality of what's, slavery in Egypt is like in the ancient world. And I don't want to downplay the reality of what exile or forced migration is like in the ancient world. Um, lives are lost in that. That is uh, a truly traumatic experience. But when we think about how they tell the stories coming out of these experiences, we see this imprint 
upon the storytelling over and over again, they come back stronger. You can count on God to bring you through it and to bring you out stronger on the other side. And I think it's that belief that forms a lot of the hope that we find throughout the Hebrew Bible, the hope that we see echoed throughout the prophets when they're uh, addressing this, this crisis, this traumatic experience of the exile. Jerusalem's destroyed. The people are taken away. Why is it that the prophets can proclaim this message of hope when everything else in the world seems so dark? Well, they've got these stories that they've been told. These stories that have shaped who they are and how they view the way God works in this world. And yes, there are times when we go through seasons of pain and suffering. But throughout these stories, there's this sense that when God is guiding you through the process, you can come back stronger. I don't think that that necessarily solves all the crises we face when we look at pain in the world. I don't think that solves all the questions we have when we experience pain in the world. But I do see that as a substantive theme throughout the storytelling. Anyways, my friends, let's, uh, let's, let's continue if we could. <clears throat> Jacob goes off. He meets another trickster. And now he's fleeing back home. And when he's coming back home now, he's going to have to face someone. He's going to have to face Esau. And here's the thing. The reason why he fled was to avoid facing Esau to begin with. And, and it's one of the things to, to, fascinating things to think about when we talk about the Jacob story. Uh, you know, in Christianity, we talk a lot about forgiveness. We talk a lot about being forgiven before God. We talk a lot about uh, standing in forgiveness before God. Uh, the sense of God washing away our shortcomings, faults, anything of that nature. But what's fascinating is we do still see throughout the Bible that even when God forgives us, even when uh, we grow through these processes, that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have to engage the consequences of our actions in this world. We still see that. Jacob went away. He grew. He, he's growing into this new person. But now he's coming back home and he still has to face the consequences of what he did before he left. And that's what creates this, this tension in the, in the story. Um, as the Jacob story unfolds. <laughs> and so in chapter 32, Jacob goes on his way. Uh, and in verse three, Jacob um, sends messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. Notice this, this language of subservience. Uh, Jacob really trying to humble himself before Esau uh, in, in a way we would expect sort of uh, between ancient uh, Mesopotamian kings almost. Um, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have lived with Laban as an alien and stayed until now. And I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves, and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. What are we expecting to happen in this story now? I mean, we all see it coming, right? Jacob kind of sends this message out, just see how things are. And the message comes back, yeah, he's coming with a small army. That doesn't exactly instill a lot of confidence. And so we see fear unfold inside of this story before Jacob. I mean, Jacob has to come back and he has to face uh, the consequences of the world that he had left behind, of the actions that he had performed, um, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of this story. 
Then Jacob, verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies, thinking if Esau comes to the one company and destroys it, then the company that is left will escape. See, Jacob is, is already planning on being attacked and he's already planning on not being able to fight back. And so he thinks, at least if I divide my household in two, if one side gets attacked, then at least the other might be able to escape. There's some real fear here. And, and we see throughout the rest of the chapter, uh, right after this, verse 9, Jacob stops and he prays. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and your kindred and I will do uh, you good. Um, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all and the mothers and the children. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. When Jacob comes back, you know, he, he makes this plan. He's expecting to be attacked, but then he prays. And in this prayer, we see the, that ancestral promise being echoed. Abraham almost claiming that promise. God, this is what you said for me. You, you told me to come back, but also you said that you were going to, uh, the, also you said that um, you'll do good for me. So now in this time, deliver me. Jacob claims this promise. You said that you will make my offspring like the sand of the sea. And so I need you to protect me in this time. And we see throughout all of the stories, um, every time it's God that has to intervene to protect the promise. And now it's almost as if, J as if Jacob gets it. God's the one who has to intervene to protect the promise. <laughs> it's as if Jacob now is starting to live out the promise that he'd been given. He's starting to live out the faith that he'd been given. We see this growth throughout him or throughout this story. He leaves with a promise that's given to him by his father. He meets God along the way, and the promise begins to become his own. But now here in chapter 32, he's starting to live by it. He spends the night there uh, in, in anguish, concerned. And, and when we get down in the verse 22, here's what it says. The same night he got up, he took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And, and I want to pause for a second because who are we talking about? We're talking about Jacob. Jacob crosses the Jabbok. Notice the, the, the wordplay that's going on here. Okay. Um, there's a complicated wordplay because Jacob, which, uh, you know, means kind of like usurper or something of that nature, um, crosses the river Jabbok. Um, and then he is going to hear wrestle in Hebrew, uh, Vayibak. This wordplay between Jacob, the river Jabbok, and the wrestling, Vayibak. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything he had. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now let's pause for a second in the storytelling. Who is this guy? Where did this guy show up? How did this guy get here? We're in the, we are in the middle of nowhere. We're in the, the, the middle of this liminal place between where Jacob was and where he is going. Who does he encounter in this liminal place? 
we've already seen that the person, the, 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 the entity, the being that, that Jacob encounters along the way from where he was to where he is going is God. We've seen that once before. But now here we get this story and there's a man that just shows up wrestling with Jacob. The man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. And so he struck him in the hip socket and Jacob's hip, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. Who is this man? <laughs> I mean, this is a strange thing. Someone shows up in the middle of the night. Everything makes it look like this is a person, like this is a human. He apparently can't overpower Jacob, but now daybreak is coming. He says, it's time for me to go. Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Now notice, how did Jacob get into this mess? Taking someone else's blessing, right? Wrestling with his family for the blessing, wrestling with his brother for the blessing, trying to deceive his brother or overpower his brother in some sense. He was striving with his brother to get that blessing. But now here, there's, there's this different kind of striving that's going on. It looks like it's a striving with another person at first. So he, the man, whoever this is, said to him, what is your name? And so he said, Jacob. And then the man uh, or in Hebrew just, and then he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. And now all of a sudden we, we read this story differently. And this is great Hebrew storytelling because as we're reading, all of the details make it look like this is a person, like this is a human that, that Jacob is wrestling with until we get to this detail. And now we're like, wait, you have striven with God. And now we go back and we read the story. And we start to see the things that aren't adding up. We're in the liminal place where God tends to show up. This, this entity just shows up out of nowhere. And then uh, once daybreak is coming, it's time to go. It's fantastic storytelling. The way that they, that they word everything, they craft the literary artistry of this story. So, so uh, <clears throat> Jacob asks him and says, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? Now notice, naming is very important in the Bible, right? And so we just got here, Jacob's name is changed. Jacob's name is changed to, uh, to Israel. And, and the, the name Israel most, uh, I guess, pro probably means something along the lines of um, God rules, El rules, something like that. So notice that Jacob's name goes from Jacob being sort of the usurper to someone who is now recognizing the authority of another, the authority of God. He goes from being a usurper to someone who recognizes the authority of God. But here, here in the story, it, it gives a meaning for this name. It's not just uh, that, he's, that God rules. There's a meaning associated with it. The idea that Jacob now has striven with God and with humans and has prevailed. And, and notice this, okay? In this story here, Jacob's uh, striving with God. In the previous stories, who did Jacob strive with? He strove with Esau. He strove with Laban. And now who's he about to strive with again? Esau again. And so here in the middle of all of, uh, all of Jacob's striving with other people, all, all of Jacob's um, tensions, the, the, the turmoil with other humans, here now we have him striving with God. And it's in this moment when he strives with God in the midst of a larger story of him wrestling with people left and right, struggling with people left and right. It's in the middle of this when he wrestles with God and we get the most significant change in who Jacob is. 
A lot of times we, we look around, we've got all these problems around us with all of these other people that we have to contend with when in fact the one we need to be contending with is God. The one we need to stop and wrestle with is God. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. This is kind of reminding us of, uh, <coughs> of the Hagar and Ishmael story already. When uh, the angel of the Lord shows up and gives Ishmael the name, gives Ishmael a name, and then Hagar turns around and names this angel of the Lord, El Roy, God who sees. Here, once again, this individual, whoever it is, this, this, it looks like a man at first shows up, changes uh, Jacob's name to Israel, and then, it, and then Israel turns around and tries to find a name for this God. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life was preserved. And that line, we've gotten that before, once again, with the Hagar and Ishmael story. It's, it's this, this same story almost unfolding, God showing up. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. <clears throat> it's fascinating. Jacob goes away from this with a new name. He goes away from this with a limp. He's never going to be the same again. And it's here in this liminal place between where Jacob was and where he was and where he's going, between the place that he left and his destination. That's where he encounters God along the way. So often we try to go to sacred spaces, to houses of God, expecting to find God there at that destination. And if we're not careful, we could miss God's presence along the way. But my friends, even as uh, Jacob has now encountered God, um, he still has to come back and face a very real problem at home, doesn't he? He still has to come back and face the consequences, uh, the, the circumstances of the situation that he created. He still has to face Esau, and there's still a very real fear there. But notice, God says, you've striven with man and with God, and you have, uh, and you have overcome, or you have prevailed. And so now we're, there's, there's this new sense of victory moving out of this experience almost. And so in uh, chapter 33, once again, uh, Jacob looks up, he sees Esau coming, he sees the 400 men coming, he divides his children, um, he, he divides his wives, um, and he, he's not really sure what to expect. He presents himself, he goes ahead of them, he bows down to the ground seven times before his brother uh, Esau, this, this once again image of subservience. Esau runs to meet him and embraces him, fell on his neck, kisses him, and weeps. And in, in the course of this exchange, uh, Jacob says, look, I've sent all these gifts to find favor with you. And um, Esau says, look, I have enough. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob here in verse 10, notice this. He says, no, please. If I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand and tru for truly to see your face. And get this, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Whose face did Jacob just see? In that previous chapter, Jacob just wrestled with God. And when he realized it was God he was wrestling with, he, he didn't realize that first. But when he realized it was God he was wrestling with, he names that place Peniel, the face of God. And he said, because I've seen God's face. And now here, 
when he comes before Esau, he says to Esau, seeing your face like seeing the face of God. And it's fascinating because buried within this story, I almost think that there may be a lesson that sometimes after we encounter God, sometimes after we experience God, sometimes after we see the face of God, we begin to see God in the faces of our neighbors differently. Jacob now sees Esau differently. He looks in Esau. It's like seeing the face of God. And sometimes it takes a very real encounter with God for us to truly appreciate the image of God in those around us. Throughout this story, there's this theme of faces. Jacob is afraid to see Esau's face. Jacob doesn't realize whose faces he's seeing. And here we see the substantive transformation in Jacob. He sees the face of God, and then when he looks at Esau, he's able to see the image of God in Esau. Esau wants to go along with Jacob, and Jacob uh, sort of says, no, we, we shouldn't go along together. My flocks have, have young with them. We can't drive them too hard. Um, you go ahead, and, and I'll meet up with you. And Jacob never actually does that. He never actually meets up with Esau. There's still a little bit of deception in that story. And there's likely still a lot of fear inside of that story. But this is not the last time when God appears to Jacob. We get this again at the very end of the story in chapter 35. <laughs> in chapter 35, Jacob goes back to Bethel. Remember, the name Bethel means house of God. It's, it's this place where, where Jacob has encountered God before. He goes back and in verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paran Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. At the very end of the story, we get this renaming of Jacob told again. And so he was called Israel. God, blessed, or God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. The land that I gave Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it, poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. The story opens with this tension between brothers and Jacob almost stealing the blessing. The ancestral promise comes to Jacob. It's given to him by his parents, by his father. And as he goes throughout this journey, that ancestral promise, that blessing gradually becomes his own. He begins growing into it. And once again, here at the end of the story, we get sort of the, the bow on top. And it's God once again showing up and reaffirming his identity, reaffirming that this promise, that this blessing is his. At the end of this story, uh, at the end of this chapter in verse or in chapter 35, we start to see a changing of the generations again. We get the death of uh, Rachel, and then we get the death of Isaac as well. And in chapter 36, we get another one of those genealogies. Remember, don't skip over the genealogies in Genesis. The genealogies are important. They often move us.
God works with uh, very different kinds of people, very different characters, as we saw with the story of Jacob. And this is actually going to set us up for what's going to come next week when we talk about the story of Joseph, the next generation. And once again, Joseph is uh, going to have to le- going to leave his homeland. Once again, Joseph is going to uh, face a struggle with um, with his siblings, with his brothers. And once again, we're going to see God intervene to protect the promise in very unexpected ways. Once again, we're going to see God show up and speak to Joseph in new and different ways. So my friends, I hope that this study has been helpful. I hope that you have found uh, the study of Jacob uh, valuable. I know that I find Jacob to be a fascinating character. Uh, Every time I read it, I am prompted with more questions than I have answers oftentimes. My friends, I hope that you have found this uh, to be... um, uh, Uh, to be beneficial as you move forward throughout your week. If you have any questions, please feel free to give me a call, send me a text message or anything of that nature. I hope that as you go forth, that you will all be blessed, that you will stay healthy, uh, that you will stay well. Um, And it is my sincerest prayer that in this hour, the church can be the church, even if we have to do so from a distance. My friends, go forth from this place, spread the love of God inside of this world because there is a love that is living and active. Amen and amen. Blessings upon you all.